0: Thank you. thanks very much. Great, well thank you so much, thank you for having me again, it's great to be back with you guys and I uh, always look forward to uh, coming to be with you and uh, just, uh, just to say, we are going to have some fun in the next few minutes, yeah. if that's okay, okay good, uh, just wanted to make sure. So anyway, for those of you who I don't know, I wouldn't want to disappoint you, I, I have got a photo on my wife and kids Uh, because it would be wrong to break with tradition. Um, So just by way of introduction, uh, I just thought I'd tell you a funny story about something that happened to me uh, where we live in in West London. I've just told this woman that we've got four daughters. She said, oh, she said, that'll be pricey. (laughs) I said, pardon? She said, that'll be pricey. I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, did you know? that the average cost of a wedding in the UK is now 15,000 pounds. She says factoring in inflation. She said <laughs> factoring in inflation. She said that means you're probably going to have to stump up about 70,000 quid to marry them all off. <laughs> I said I haven't got 70,000 quid. She said, "Well," she said, "you're going to have to rob a bank." I said, I can't rob a bank. I'm a Christian. She said, Oh, she said, how very inconvenient. (laughs) Now, um, quite apart from whether it is uh, convenient, the truth is, uh, guys, I never expected that I would be standing here. Um, I didn't go to church, I didn't have any friends who uh, went to church. I wasn't looking for God, I wasn't searching. But the best thing that has ever happened to me has been coming to know God personally through trusting Jesus Christ. So I wonder whether I could begin by asking you, what is your ambition for your life? What's your dream? It is the start of a new year. At the start of the new year, we're allowed to dream a bit. And I guess many of us would answer that question by saying, well, my ambition for my life is... Uh, well I don't know that I need to be enormously famous, I don't know that I need to be enormously wealthy. We might say my ambition for my life might be that if I could have one loving, lasting relationship with one other person, I mean if I could have a a happy family life, I mean if we were able to have children, if I could have a happy family life and We might say, as a bonus, if I could have a fulfilling job, if I could do something where I could actually, I don't know, make a difference, if I could in some small way help to make the world a better place, if I had a fulfilling job and I had a happy family life, if I had all that, we'd say, well yeah, (laughs) I think I'd be happy. But the funny thing about being me, the funny thing about being a 47-year-old married bloke with four kids, is that when I pick up the two younger ones from the primary school, all the other parents at the school gate, they've got the successful career. They've got the stable marriage. They've got the kids. And they are not short of money. And yet some of them have literally said to Julia and to me, there's got to be more to life than this. In fact some of the mums have asked my wife Julia whether she could start an Alpha course just for them. Because it seems that when we have arrived at whatever it is that right now we're trying to arrive at as we work our way through life and then we go for the job that we the the job that we really want and that we get the job that we really want we can find that when we've got what we wanted whether it's the car or the flat or the house or whatever it is, that after a while, hmm, there's still this nagging feeling that there remains some element or dimension to life that we haven't got yet. And I feel like now I've found that elusive, lasting sense of peace. I feel like I've found a missing ingredient that at least some people are looking for. And i found that in a relationship with God through trusting this person, Jesus Christ. You know, there was a report in the Times newspaper about what makes people happy. More than 21,000 people in 10 countries were asked what lifts their spirits. So what was the biggest factor in every country, in every age group, that contributes to a sense of well-being? Answer? Relationships. And in particular, the most fulfilled group were those who said they had a relationship with God. The survey said those who have a relationship with God are content with what they have. The survey showed that those belonging to this category achieved higher well-being scores than anyone else in society. Now, I would say that I found that sense of well-being and contentment through Christ. In the New Testament section of the Bible, Jesus offers you and me eternal life. And when people actually met Jesus, what overwhelmed them about him was his compassion and his humility. Jesus truly loved people. And he came for you. And when people met Jesus, what overwhelmed them about him was his compassion and his humility. He truly loved people. He said things like, Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My burden's easy and light. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Jesus said, hey, if you're hungry, I'm the bread of life. Jesus promised us a quality of life in this life that he called abundant life, life to the full. And he said, if you follow me, I'll be with you always, even to the very end of the age. So right now, you and I can come to Christ. Christ who said, I am the light of the world. Christ who said, I am the resurrection and the life. If anyone lives and believes in me, even if he dies, he'll live. Christ who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Christ who predicted that he would be killed but then also predicted that three days later he'd rise from the dead. You know my first job was working as a reporter for the Times newspaper in London and then I went on to become a, a BBC radio presenter then eventually I became a TV presenter. And when I was working at the BBC I was trained to be cynical. I was trained to doubt and disbelieve everything and everyone. But I became convinced by the historical evidence that Jesus of Nazareth must have risen from the dead and that his resurrection backs up, gives real credibility to his amazing claims. And here's the best analogy that I could think of from my life in terms of what was happening when Jesus Christ was born just over 2,000 years ago. I went to a school uh, whereby whenever a teacher entered the classroom, uh, everybody was supposed to stand up and there was supposed to be silence. Yeah? But there never was total silence, apart from on those very rare occasions when the headmaster would enter a classroom. When the headmaster entered a classroom it fell instantly silent. This was a man who everyone held in awe. And everybody would look at the headmaster in the distance. And everybody in the school had the same kind of relationship with the headmaster. Everyone that was except me. I was different because the headmaster was my dad. (laughs) And Christmas was so special for me because at Christmas he'd finish writing his final end of term report and then he'd sort of go into home family mode. And at Christmas that's when it really hit me that the biggest authority in the school The headmaster, the biggest authority there was, the headmaster, Mr. Holloway, personally loved me. I was his son. And at Christmas, he stepped down from the stage. And he changed out of his suit. And he stepped down from his position of power and he came into my world and he showed his love for me, not by showering me with presents, but by spending time with me. My dad spent time with me when he didn't have to. And it was amazing to me as a boy to think that this man who seemed so important would want. To devote his attention and shower all his affection upon me. The greatest gift that my dad could ever have given me was himself. And folks, this is what God the Father did at the first Christmas. He stepped down from his position of power. Our Father, God the greatest gift that God could ever have given us was himself. He stepped down from his position of power and this morning comes close to you, comes close to me, steps into your world through this person, Jesus Christ. And this is not a case of mistaken identity as God reaches out to you. On this subject, I just wonder if I could tell you a funny story about something that happened to me. One time I was driving my car, uh, this is in West uh, Sussex, in a place called Crawley, and I'm driving along, and um, suddenly, I see flashing blue lights in my rearview mirror. I'm being pulled over by the police. Now, folks, normally, when this happens, um, I immediately feel guilty because I already know what I've done wrong. So that's why I'm already feeling guilty as soon as I see the lights. But I have to say, folks, on this particular occasion, when I saw the flashing lights, I couldn't think of anything that I had done wrong. So I'm thinking, well, maybe the policeman's just bored. Maybe he's seen how well I'm driving. He wants to congratulate me (laughs) on my driving. And then it occurred to me, hang on a minute, What could have happened here is he's seen my Christian car sticker, Yeah, he's seen how well I'm driving. He's put the two together, he wants to ask me about Jesus. (laughs) So I was feeling pretty excited as I wound down my window. He comes over and he says, is this your vehicle, sir? I said yes, yes, as a matter of fact it is. He says, were you aware that you were indicating for at least 200 yards before you eventually turned right at the previous junction? And i was thinking, you know, I hadn't realised that early indication was an offence. And so he says, step out of the vehicle, please, sir. I said, why? He said, when was the last time you had an alcoholic drink? I said, well, that's a good question. Um, Oh, gosh, let me think. Um, Three months ago, I said. He said, blow into this bag, please, sir. I said, why are you getting me to do a breath test? He said, because your responses to my questions are a bit slow. (laughs) I said, look, come on, I'm just a slow kind of guy, I mean, I'm, I'm not the brightest, I'm, I'm just a bit slow in the uptake. So anyway, I blow into this breathalyzer kit, I hand it to him, he's looking at the result, and I say to him, it's negative, isn't it? He said, yes, sir, it is negative, it must be broken. <laughs> he said, have you been taking drugs, sir? I said, no. He said, cocaine, sir? I said, no. He said, ecstasy, sir? I said, no. And then eventually, he let me go with a stern warning about the perils of early indication before (laughs) church. But throughout that whole conversation I just felt like it was a case of mistaken identity. And you know the most amazing thing about you? The most amazing thing about me? Is that as God reaches out to you this is not a case of mistaken identity. God knows all the worst that there is to know about me. God knows all the worst that there is to know about you. God knows all the best that there is to know about you. God knows all the best that there is to know about me. And still, he loves you. He's for you. He's reaching out to you. For instance, here's a photo of a couple that experienced this, of God reaching out to them, uh, Paul and Helena Hanley. And uh, when this photo was taken. Uh, Paul and Helena wouldn't have called themselves Christians. Uh, In fact, Paul was quite a confident, outspoken atheist. He was 35 years old, had a successful career in the city of London. uh, He was an insurance broker. Helena is a nurse. They've got a nice house in Surrey. They've got three sons. Um, Just to give you a bit of background, Paul uh, plays open side flanker for Caterham Rugby Club. He's a keen surfer when he gets the chance. And Paul is... Uh, an outspoken critic he's a, a opposed to Christianity now today uh, Paul is the pastor of a church in Cornwall and actually this is the second church that Paul and Helena have led and so uh, you know how does that happen how do you go from uh, being a committed atheist to leading two churches this is a screenshot of Paul just of casting the vision for his church on the church website So how does that happen? How do you make this big change? Well, here's what happened, okay? Paul and Helena go for a picnic in this park where they live in Caterham in Surrey, and as they're walking along, um, Paul spots this couple called Richard and Jill Wrighton, and Jill is a colleague of Helena's, and Paul knows that this fellow, this lady who's a nurse and her husband, he knows this is a Christian couple, they've met once before, and so as Paul's walking along the path, he tries to pretend that he hasn't seen Richard and Jill Wrighton. So he walks, he, he tries to pretend he keeps his eyes focused ahead, but then, ah, oh, there's just been too much eye contact. So Paul has to do that thing where he says, Oh, hi, ha, <laughs> ha, almost walked straight by you. Ha, 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 you know, didn't see you there. Hi, how are you doing? Great to see you, he says. Now, the thing is that Richard and Jill are having a picnic on the grass there, And Paul and Helena are holding picnic boxes. So the social rules of Surrey dictate that they must go over and have a joint picnic with Richard and Jill. So now Paul and Helena are with, they're in the four of them, and they're sitting down. And Paul thinks to himself, you know, if they bring up the God or the church or Jesus or whatever these people talk about, if they raise the subject, all I will do is I'll have a bit of fun with them. I will just be able to point out the factual inaccuracies, the logical inconsistencies, Uh, I'll be able to point out the contradictions, I'll be able to tie them up in their own words, Paul thinks. And you know one hour later, the subject does come up and they have a conversation as Paul is walking back to the car he feels that he has won the argument as he sees it rather easily. He remembers thinking it was actually even easier than I thought. So he puts the picnic boxes in the back of the car in the boot. He puts the key in the ignition. Helena's is sitting next to him. And before he turns the engine on, he hears himself say to his wife, Helena, darling, you know that credit card bill that I told you yesterday was this much? I'm ever so sorry, I lied to you. It was actually much more. It was this much. They then followed a full and frank exchange of views uh, between the married couple. And then eventually, after a very noisy discussion, they drive home, and Paul, as he's driving home, thinks, what was that? Where did that come from? What, What was that all about? So he gets home, and as he gets home, he pulls up onto the drive, gravel drive, and he feels this sort of compelling urge to go into his study. He goes into the study, and he gets out a pad of A4 paper and he just starts to write down everything that he can think of that he's ever done wrong. And I talked to him about this uh, some weeks later, when I first met him. And I said, well, what was going on there? And he said, well, it was just like being sick. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I knew once I got it all out, I'd feel better. I said, well, he tells me he's gone back in for three consecutive days. He spent three days in his study writing all this stuff. I said, why did it take you three, three days? He said, well, I had 35 years of stuff to write down. And I said, Paul, what did Richard and Jill Wrighton say to you in the park that day that had this profound effect upon you? He said, oh, 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 he said, it wasn't anything they said. I said, well, what was it? He said, it was them. It was something about them. Now he would now say that it was Christ in them. Now Paul and Helena became Christians and I met them 10 days later. I was wearing the black t-shirt. I was on the doors with the welcome saying hello, you know, welcome. And so this married couple turned up first Sunday ever in church three sons. I say, "Hi, what's your name?" He tells me this amazing story that I just told you. Here's the thing, within a few years Paul was the pastor the leader of our church and now as I said they they live in Cornwall and they, they run this amazing ministry called Walk on Water which is an outreach to surfers and Paul would say now that the real Jesus who really is alive was working through Richard and Jill Wrighton to create within Paul a desire to be pure Paul wanted to feel clean he wanted to be washed he wanted to be renewed He'd never had that craving before. Paul found that there is more to, be, to life than being successful, more to life even than being a happy family man. Paul and Helena found there's a real God who really loves them. So there's the Handlers, there's me, there's, I don't know, a couple of hundred people who are part of this church. There are now between one and two billion people alive today who say they found a new peace and a new joy through Christ. That means for every four people walking around on the face of this planet, at least one of those four is claiming to have experienced a new peace and a new joy through Christ. Joy and peace coming to know a God who always planned that one day you would exist. And always planned that he wanted to have a love relationship with you. And now he's made you deliberately on purpose in the hope of having that relationship. And it's now possible through Christ. A relationship that's good with Father God, not just for this life, but which goes on into the next life, into a place where every day will be better than the one before. That's what Christ offers. So for Paul and Helena, this discovery came unexpectedly. For me, what happened to me was that somebody invited me to church completely out of the blue. And so I came to a church very much like this church, and that was the start of a fairly intensive nine months of me asking loads of questions, raising lots of objections, and I came from a very skeptical background. So I just want to mention very briefly four lines of evidence that I found persuasive. So number one, first thing that Impacted me was the scientific discovery that the universe began to exist in a beginning moment. Now, when I started to look into this, I discovered that in the late, well, up until the late 1920s, atheists used to argue that the universe was eternal. Atheists used to argue that the universe has always been there. Just accept it, they said, there's never been a time when it wasn't there. Now, at the time, that kind of made sense because at the time, the universe was thought to be locked in a so-called static or steady state. But then, an American astronomer called Edwin Hubble took a series of photographs in 1929 which proved that the universe is not locked in a static, steady state. Hubble said, or he saw, that the other galaxies are moving away from each other. And the easiest way for us to visualise what Edwin Hubble saw is to use a balloon. So... Just imagine for a moment that these stars on my eight-year-old daughter Grace's balloon are actually galaxies. So this is what Edwin Hubble saw, that all the stars are moving away from each other and also moving away from us. And wherever we look in the universe, this is what's happening. So cosmologists concluded the universe is expanding. And if the universe is expanding, they concluded that at one time in the past, the universe must have been much smaller than it is today. In fact, they concluded at one time the universe was no bigger than this balloon. They concluded, cosmologists concluded, that at one time the universe must have had a beginning. And then, in 1965, astronomers Robert Wilson and Arno Penzias discovered some background radiation in the universe that was left behind by this beginning moment. This radiation is like a signature left behind by this beginning moment. And so today there is an overwhelming scientific consensus that at one time the universe did have a beginning. So it's not that matter and energy exploded into an already existing space-time universe. No! Space time, matter, and energy all began to exist at a point in the finite past. We now know that the universe came into existence suddenly, out of nothing. And this discovery supports the second step of a simple case for the existence of God. Step one says that everything that begins to exist has a cause. Now, don't know about you, but this sounded reasonable to me. At least we don't know of any exceptions to step one. Step two says that the universe began to exist. Well, as we've just seen, this is the reigning scientific orthodoxy. This is the standard model. So the conclusion necessarily follows that the universe has a cause. Someone or something that exists outside of time and space caused the universe to come into being. So to get a universe out of nothing, you need a cause. And a cause that's capable of bringing space, time, matter and energy into existence, well, you could call that first cause God. Next thing that influenced me was the precise fine-tuning of the universe. In recent years, scientists have discovered there are 20 forces, 20 factors, 20 values, 20 numbers that have to be just so, otherwise no people could ever have existed. Any messing with any of these numbers in the, in the column that says value in our universe, any messing with any of these numbers, and there wouldn't be life on Earth. If you touch any of these dials there'd be no universe or there'd be no life. And when I actually came to study this, for all 20 to be fine-tuned so precisely to each other, given that these forces could have had any random value, they don't necessarily have to have these values, well, in any other area of life, I would never have accepted sheer luck or chance as an explanation for the facts that are in front of us. So by this stage, it was beginning to seem to me as if God had gone to a lot of trouble to create our finely-tuned universe from nothing. And seeing as God has gone to all this trouble, you might expect that this God might want to reveal himself to his creatures. All the Bible is saying is that that is what was happening through Jesus of Nazareth. But before we get to that, let me just mention one other thing that affected me or influenced me. Um, Because at this point, somebody gave me a book called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And this book argues for the existence of objective moral values and duties. Now, everybody who I've ever spoken to about this, whether this person is an atheist, whether this person is a Christian, no matter where they're coming from, it seemed to me that everybody has a deep conviction that some crimes, a few despicable acts are absolutely morally wrong. And we think these crimes are wrong Just not not just now, but we think that everybody who ever has committed them, everybody who ever will commit these crimes, we think it's going to be wrong in the past or in the future all the time. But if there is no God, then these crimes are not absolutely wrong because there is no absolute. There's no God. But we still feel a deep Revulsion, a deep conviction. When people commit these crimes, we don't think, oh yes, you're doing something unfashionable. Oh, or you're going contrary to public, po- current popular opinion. No, we think, we're outraged. If I mention the crimes now, there'll be people in this room who would stand up and say, that is abominable, it's outrageous. We feel a deep revulsion against these crimes. And it feels like There's a moral law that's been broken when people commit these crimes and it just began to occur to me if there is a moral law in each and every one of our hearts could it be that there's a moral lawgiver? The fourth and final thing that affected me folks was what happened to me when I started reading the words of Jesus. So I can take you to the place in London SW20 in a place called Raines Park I was sitting in the back of a red Volkswagen polo And I was reading the words of Jesus. I only read for about 10 minutes from one of the records of his life. But in those 10 minutes, something happened. Because the attractive thing in Christianity is not any particular doctrine, the attractive thing in Christianity is a person, it's the person of Christ. And when I read his words, as I saw his character, as I heard his teaching, listening to Jesus is like drinking a glass of clear, cool, clean water on a hot, sunny day. And people just wanted to be with him because they knew that he was for real. His integrity, his honesty. And I thought to myself, you know, if God really did become a man, I would expect that that man would affect me through his... Miracles through his moral beauty, he'd impact me. I would expect there to be a unique authenticity about him. And that's exactly what I found. And then, as I said earlier, the clincher for me was the weight of the historical evidence, the compelling historical evidence for his resurrection. And it's that, his physical resurrection, that backs up all his amazing claims. So why did Jesus come? And why do so many people say that he is the way into a relationship with God. Well, at this point, I wonder, just for a bit of light relief, whether we could actually have a, a, this, a, a vote, actually, uh, just for a bit of fun. Um, I wonder if you could just look at my face for a moment. Not, not a pleasant sight, I know. Just for a moment. You look, this only works if you look at my face. Now, could you please just do me a favor, ladies and gentlemen? Could you just raise your hand? If, looking at my face right now, you think that I have got a criminal record. Can you just raise your hand, please? Okay. Thank you very much. Okay, hands down. Thanks very much. And now, could you please raise your hands if, looking at my face, you think that I have not got a criminal record? Could you raise your hands, please? Okay. Okay, that's helpful. Okay. So the truth is, folks, that I have got a criminal record. Oh, it's all gone quiet. I mean, I, I, <laughs> just being vulnerable with you here. Um, so uh, here's the truth. Uh, on the 14th of November, 1988, uh, I was arrested for harassment, alarm distress, and willful obstruction of a highway. There we are. I, I, I can see you're interested. I'm very happy to tell you about my crime. I will in just a moment. But what was really quite exciting was the way in which I was arrested. The manner of my arrest. Because I was arrested at the end of a police chase. I had been chased by a police car with sirens blaring. I was on foot. I'd run over two roads. I jumped over a fence. The police car screeches to a halt. The two coppers fly out the car. They jump over the fence. I'm now running uphill through a muddy field and I can hear the faster the two coppers getting closer and closer closer. I'm in a police chase. It's really exciting. So I'm getting faster and faster and faster. He's getting closer and closer and closer and then eventually he does this excellent rugby tackle from behind and I go face down in the mud and I'm lying there in the mud thinking to myself that was cool. <laughs> I mean, they must practice that, don't you think? Like, full flight, and suddenly, bang. And of course, I'm lying there, face down in the mud. And, and like you would, I'm just rifling through all these cop TV shows that I've watched growing up. And as you know, what happens on telly at this point is that the police officer says, you're Nick, Sonny Jim. Do you know he actually said that? <laughs> and I was so delighted. So I stand up, and I said, look, I, 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 I'm, officer, I just want to say thank you so much. I mean, I... <laughs> That's really quite exciting. I mean, the chase, the rugby tackle. I mean, I'm from Wimbledon. This is really quite exciting. <laughs> and, and, he's, and, of course, what happens on telly, as you know, is that uh, what happens next is that the policeman puts his, your, your arm up your back. Like that. Do you know he did that as well? So I'm now um, being walked back to the squad car like this. As you know, I'm mean, again, thinking through all the cop TV shows that I've watched growing up, what happens when the arrested person is put into the back of the car, and what happens is that one of the policemen puts his hand on your head and pushes you down as if you've never got into the back seat of a car ever before. <laughs> and so he did that as well. So he pushes me down. So I go back to the station. I empty out my pockets. I'm arrested. I'm put in the cells. Now, I mean, it might be that there's one or two people here this morning, and you by this stage are wondering, you know, Adrian, what was the harassment? What was the alarm? What was the dress- what, what was the willful obstruction of a highway? Well, I have to tell you, folks, that. I was a student at the time and what had happened was that I was going home to the college where I lived at the time and as I was going home I noticed that there was a group of about 20 of my friends who had got hold of quite a large felled tree and they had manoeuvred this tree to block a road and this road was the entrance to a rival and in our opinion inferior college. And so I thought this was a good thing to do. I mean, at the time, I thought, you know, there's actually no public benefit. This institution has no public benefit to anyone anyway. So it'd be quite good to block. You know, if people can't get in or can't get out, that'd be a good thing for society. So I thought, let's block the road. Let's just section off this, co- this community altogether over here. And so I joined in, thinking this is a good thing to do. And then the first clue that there was something up was when the flashing blue lights appear in the distance, or my mate Scarpa. And I remember thinking, no, 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 you don't need to run away. The police are reasonable people, this is obviously a student prank, we're students, I'm from Wimbledon, I'll be able to reason with these people. But then, no. when the police car got really close, I thought, no, probably this is wrong. Probably this is going to turn out to be harassment, alarm, distress, and the willful obstruction of a highway. And so, because I was the last to leave the scene of my crime, I was also the easiest to catch. But that wasn't my first sin. That was just my first publicly recorded sin. No, the truth is that by that stage of my life, there were loads of times when I knew what the right thing to do was, but I didn't do it. Loads of times when I'd taken the gifts of food and fun and friends and falling in love for granted. Loads of times when i kind of pushed God to the margins of my life, taken the gift of life, oxygen, Just take it for granted. Just done my own thing, gone my own way. Now I'm one of those people who writes something down at the end of every day, and I keep a diary. And so for many years, I this is my 1997 diary, and so I've written something here on every page. These are my thoughts, you know, what I really think of other people. You know, it's all in here. And so if you want to know what I'm really like, this, you know, standing on a stage talking, this isn't the real me. Two ways you can find out the real we, real me. Number one, read this. Number two, ask my wife, okay? Those are two ways you find out what I'm really like. So if you came up here now, like the service ends, everybody's having tea and coffee, and you sneak up here and you start to read this, you would think, oh, oh dear, this is a bit disappointing. Oh dear, I'm surprised they let this guy, this is, you know, it's, it's not good. So if you think, just for a moment, let's imagine God's up here somewhere, and let's imagine my right hand is you and me, and we are made for a relationship with God with nothing in the way, my problem is what's in here. Because this stuff comes between me and God. The things that I've done that are wrong. Unfortunately, I can't go back to 1997 and do that Superman thing where you undo the past and you do it all, you can't, that's like Hollywood. So I can't go into a perfect heaven with this, because the Bible says about heaven it's a perfect place, that nothing impure will ever enter it. Well, that counts me out. And the Bible says that all of us have sinned, that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We're all cut off from him. So when I die, I can't get through. I can't get into heaven. There's this barrier in the way. And the Bible says the result of the wages of sin is death. If I die separated from God, I spend eternity without him. That's the bad news. I'm facing eternal death, eternal punishment, eternal separation from God. But... Because God so loved you, he sent his son. Just imagine my left hand is Jesus of Nazareth. Who said he'd never sinned. He got millions of people to believe him. Jesus had nothing separating him from his father until when he was 33 years old. As he dies on a wooden cross, all of the sins of everyone who would ever put their trust in him are placed upon Christ. He takes the death that was coming to me. He takes the death that's coming to every single one of you who put your trust in Christ. So he's separated from his Father. He dies on the cross, but hey, it isn't enough good news for you and me if we choose to believe it, because look, the barrier is gone. And so this is how we can enter into a relationship with God with nothing in the way. And in fact, the deal's even better than this, because just imagine for a moment, this white sheet represents the perfect life of Christ. And after his death and resurrection and his ascension... He comes to you, and if you are in Christ, if you put your trust in him, then he covers over all of my sins, all of your hurts. He'll bind up all of your wounds. He'll cover them all over so that when God looks at you, all he sees is the perfection of his son. And you can have peace with God. And once you've got this peace, there's no need to worry about anything in this life or in the next. Once you've got this peace, there's no need to be afraid of anything anymore. Once you've got this peace, what an amazing thing it is for you to go through every single day for the rest of your life, to wake up tomorrow morning and every single day for the rest of your life knowing, it doesn't matter what comes against me today. I know God loves me. God has got a good plan for my life. I've got peace with God. And if you're not sure that you have got that peace, you can have it. And so many people I know have found that peace through going on an Alpha course. Thank you so much for listening to me. It's been great being with you. God bless you. Thanks very much. Okay, maybe the band could uh, come up and join me. And just as they come, um, I just want to mention uh, these feedback forms. And just as we finish up here in a moment, Matthew's going to come back, we're going to sing a song. And, uh, but just before that, um, we're going to ask everyone whether you'd be kind enough just to give us your comments, your feedback on what you thought of this morning's events. We're always trying to improve what we're doing here. So even if you've come to this church every Sunday for years, we'd love to know what you thought. Let me say something about Alpha. Alpha. The man who developed the Alpha course is a 60-year-old vicar in the Church of England. And he was interviewed by Cosmopolitan magazine. And when the photographer and the interviewer from Cosmopolitan arrived at the vicarage for the photo shoot, understandably, the vicar says words to the effect of, You Cosmo, me vicar. Why you come to me? And this is what the reporter from Cosmopolitan said. He said, the type of people who read Cosmopolitan are the sort of people who tend to have everything and yet they feel that there's something missing. They have some kind of spiritual hunger. And so many of our readers have had that hunger satisfied by going on an Alpha course. Now I've led 35 Alpha courses and what struck me is how it appeals to such a vast cross-section of people in this country. Millions of people in Britain have been on Alpha. Alpha is unique in that it's recommended by all the Christian denominations. There is nothing weird or strange about it. And the talks touch on all the big questions of life. So let me finish by saying, if you were to come to the whole of the upcoming Alpha course here at King's Church, you would be spending a total of around 20 hours of your life looking at the claims of the most famous man who's ever lived, the person who's had the biggest impact on the history of our world, of anyone who's ever lived, And I think in the context of a 70, 80, 90-year life, we would look back and think those 20 hours, probably whatever conclusion we come to about Jesus, we'd probably all agree those 20 hours in an 80, 90-year life, probably time well spent. But this morning, I'm not asking you to go on the whole of the King's Church Alpha course. But I am asking you whether you would consider coming back just to do week one on a no-strings-attached, one-off basis, You come to week one on Tuesday and if you don't want to carry on, hey, that's just one evening of your life. But I'm bound to say that there are tens of thousands of people in this country, very much like you, who looking back would say, you know what, actually taking everything into consideration, the decision to try Alpha turned out to be the single best decision that I've ever made. I personally know hundreds of people who would say the single best decision I ever made was the decision to try Alpha. So if you are thinking of coming, then so we can cater for the right number of people in terms of food, we'd love to put you on a table with people that you already know if possible, so that's why we'd love you to tell us who you are and uh, just tell us your details. So if we're just going to have some background music here for 60 seconds, and as the keyboard's playing, if you just want to take a pencil, uh, we'd love to improve these events. If you all tell us what you think, how could we have made it better, what did you like, what didn't you like? And then if there is somebody on your row and they're ticking that box to say they, they're interested in Alpha, they're not the only person reaching for a pencil because everyone's writing something. So if we all do this together, if everybody joins in, it'll take 60 seconds. Thank you for your patience. And then we'll collect up these feedback forms in the song in just 60 seconds' time. Thank you so much.